Good evening, good evening. So good to see each one of you here this morning, this morning, this evening. And we're glad of, for all of you that are joining us online. Welcome. We're so glad. Well, our God is good and our hope is alive in him. And he is the reason for our joy. So I invite you to stand and let's worship him together. For all the world to see that you are good. Love, love changes everything. Your love has rescued me. Now I am yours. You took all of my life. Now all of my love is yours. You took all of my life. All of my love is yours. All that I have is yours. My soul is praise forevermore, forevermore. I come alive in you, in you. My soul is shout forevermore. We are dancing, we are singing, we 
You can be seated if you'd like. Psalm 106 says, Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. That holy God that we just sang about is a good God. And He's worthy of our praise and our thanksgiving. And so as we continue to worship, you're welcome to stay seated. If you want to stand, you can stand. But feel free to just worship God. But let's praise our God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.
Goodness of God. 
tonight that we were given another day. It's because of you that we can stand and sing your praises. It's because of you that we can even be in your presence at all. So we praise you and we give thanks to you and bless your name for you are good and your love it lasts forever. So thank you for all the blessings you've given us. Thank you for being with us each and every day. We worship you and we declare that you're our one defense. You're our righteousness. Oh God, how I need. 
Amen. If you would open up your Bibles to John chapter 9. As we continue our, our study and through the Bible and through John. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Problem with Pain, or The Problem of Pain, and I quote, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It's a megaphone to rouse a deaf world. There is something about pain that gets our attention. Pain is a really good teacher, but we don't like going to that school. As we take a look at John chapter 9, we're going to encounter something that creates a tension. And the tension has to do with suffering. We don't like it. We don't like tragedy. We don't like suffering. And oftentimes we look at suffering, we look at tragedy, we look at loss in a way of divine retribution. And in other words, God, why? What did I do so wrong that you would punish me? There's another side to that coin from divine retribution in, in, in that God reveals His glory through suffering. That it serves as a, as a means to be able to reveal His power and His presence. Now, we're coming to an end of the, what's called the temple discourse, as Jesus was teaching in the temple, and, and we're kind of in, in an in-between section in John chapter 9, where Jesus is going to be just before the Feast of Dedication that we'll pick up in next week in, in chapter 10. But Jesus is still on the Temple Mount. And He's meeting with people and discussing things with people and uh, about spiritual things. And He's with a group of people that are really spiritually blind. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, incarnate is right in front of them, the religious leaders, and they don't, they don't get it. It's amazing how sin will blind us and how those that are spiritually dead can't see the power of God that's right in front of them, isn't it? Where, where God will declare Himself and, and people just miss it. They think they see, but they don't. They're really blind. This is a great illustration in chapter 9, both for the disciples and for the religious leaders, where Jesus is the only one that can reveal truth and He can open the eyes of the blind. Tonight we're going to see a blind man that is given back his sight and the challenges that come along with this. And, and the miracle, while powerful, the message is much greater. So let's take a look at, at John chapter 9. And we'll kind of get the, the setting in verses 1 through 5 as the setup here. It says, And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he would be born blind. And Jesus answered and he said, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the work of God might be displayed. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So, 
Jesus is, again, moving in this temple courtyard. And John picks up on this, just this next notable event. It's not right after chapter 8, but, but it is the next notable thing. Now imagine Jesus, he's moving with the disciples, as was the custom, throughout the courtyard. And he passes by, and notice it says, he saw a man blind from birth. So it tells us that Jesus noticed this specific man out of all of the people that was blind from birth. Now, was there something that distinguished this man as being blind? Did he have a cane? We know he was a beggar. Whatever the case was, he was noticeable. So much so that the disciples noticed that Jesus noticed this man. And they asked the question, was it this man's sin or was it his parents' sin that caused him to be blind? What brought about this horrible thing that took place? What caused this man to be blind from birth? What evil did he do or what evil did his parents do? Now again, we get in this idea where when something bad happens, we think, God, what did I do to make you mad? What, what happened that would, that would cause you to bring this, this suffering down upon me? And it was, Jesus said it was neither him nor his parents that sinned, but it was divine providence which creates a tension. What's the tension? God determined that this man would be born blind. It was a divine retribution, but there was a purpose within this. This illustration, this miracle is going to illustrate Jesus' mission. It's going to be an object lesson. If you think about it, everyone that is born into sin is born spiritually blind, are they not? If you're born into sin, you're born spiritually blind. You're born spiritually dead, and the dead man can't see God. You, you can't see God. You can't understand God because you're dead. So every person is born spiritually blind because of the nature of sin that, that we're in when we're born. And so within this, we see that this man has a condition from birth, just like us. It's called sin. In John chapter 9, later on in verses 39 to 41... We're going to get to it, but I wanted to bring it up just so that we'll have some understanding. Jesus would say, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see. Well, that's the ones that are saved. And those that see may become blind. Who are those? Those are the religious leaders that think that they see. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We're not blind too, are we? Jesus said to him, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. What was the problem? It was self-confidence. They thought they could see God, but they couldn't. They had religion, but no relationship within this. But Jesus came so those that can't see would be given sight. Do you realize that apart from the work of God, you will never see God? God initiates that work and opens your eyes. He comes to you and opens your eyes. So who's to blame for this man's sin? Well, again, this is a hard question. Do you remember ever reading about a guy in the Bible named Job? 
Now, Job was a righteous man. As you read through Job, he was a righteous man, and he, and, and God bragged on him, and Satan came after him, and we think about all the bad things that happened to Job. He lost his wealth, he lost his kids, and he lost his health. And he had a wife that said, uh, just curse God and die. His friends weren't that encouraging either. And you look at this guy, he was a righteous man and he didn't do anything wrong, but God allowed suffering in his life to the extent that he would just be challenged, even of his own life. His friends in Job 13 gave him human answers to try to alleviate suffering. And when you're suffering in that extent, there's nothing that anybody can say that's going to make you feel better. The best thing they can do is give human advice, and it just doesn't work. And so we know that, that suffering comes from man's fallen condition, Genesis 3. And we know that suffering can come from divine retribution. In fact, in John chapter 5, when Jesus had already healed another man, he says this in 514, he says, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. He said, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, which implies what? That he had already been sinning and caused his, his illness. He says, don't sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. So, can we sin to the extent that we bring about our own demise or we can bring about our own illness? Absolutely we could. So there is a divine retribution in our sin when we rebel against God. If God says, don't do it, and you do it, God says, well, if you do this, then you're going to suffer. So there is a side of suffering that comes from divine retribution, but not with this guy. So it doesn't always happen as a result of God punishing someone. So what do we see? Well, in verse 3, we know it serves a purpose. Jesus said, it was neither this man's sin nor his parents, but note, it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So this man was born blind. And if you think about it, when did God determine that this man would be born blind? Before the foundations of the world. Before the foundations of the world, God had already determined that this man would be born blind for such a day that when Jesus would show up, that he would bring healing to this man so that this man would reveal the glory of God from the presence of Jesus. Now that's a crazy thing to think about. That before the foundations of the world, God had determined that this man would be born blind, grow up as an adult, be a beggar, all the way to the point so that on this particular day, Jesus would bring healing to him to reveal that He is God. So that God would be glorified through that healing, the revelation of Jesus as the Son of God, that Jesus would be able to do the works of God within this. Verses 4 and 5 tells us that suffering is really only for a short time in this world. We think about this and it says, we must work the works of Him who sent me as long as it's day. Night's coming when we can't work. I am, ego of me, in the world and I am the light of the world. 
that tells us that the suffering and God's being glorified in our suffering is only for a short period of time. But when you and I go through all kinds of horrible things and bad things happen, and they do, it's only for a short time. But we get to be reflections of the glory of God as God works through those difficulties that are, that are happening. We get to experience the glory and the power of God. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, With the comfort by which you have been comforted, comfort one another. One of the ways that God is glorified is when you go through suffering and you experience the glory of God in the healing and the comfort and you get on the other side of the suffering, guess what you are equipped to do? Bring comfort to those that are now going to be going through that. And you can say, here's how God got me through this. Here's how God showed Himself strong in this. But you don't get to have that knowledge unless you go through the difficulty and the trial. That's why we must work the works of Him who sent us, following after Jesus. And, it, and it's the time to do that. When God has taken you in and through suffering, look for those opportunities to minister to one to another. There's an urgency. Jesus would say, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. While you are in the world, you are the light of the world. God is revealing that to you. So you have that opportunity and we have two choices to respond in our suffering. We can sit, soak, sour, right? God doesn't love me. God hates me. I think I'll eat a worm. Or we can look for the power of God that pulls us out. And we say, God, you brought me through this. You put this on my plate. How are you going to show yourself strong? And then you get on the other side of it, and then you get eyes, and you start looking. You say, now who can I minister to? We have a service that's going to be here on Friday for someone who has died. And I was talking with the widow earlier this week. Her comment, and I shared this very same thing with her last week. As she was watching her husband about to die, and I said, look, at the things that you're going through right now are unique to you. Eight years ago, your son died suddenly. Now your husband is dying of cancer. You watch. God will show you what you need to do. So we meet on Monday. She comes in. She goes, you know what, Carrie? You were right. My sister-in-law, father, just suddenly died. And she was with me last week, and he suddenly died. And I had some words that I could share with her about what we're going through. And I said, yeah, because that is your story. And God is writing that story in your life to be able to share that so that God would be glorified. We become that light or the reflection of the light in the world. Jesus would say in Matthew 5.14, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Whatever story God is writing in your life through blessing or tragedy, that is for you to be able to tell and share. To be that light. To be that encouragement. This was a, a lesson for the disciples to learn about who Jesus is, but it was also a lesson of rebuke against the Pharisees that were also watching this. 
all for this day. Jesus said the night is coming when no one can work. That night that he was speaking of was the time between the cross and the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. He said there's going to be a period of time when I am, I am not going to be working and the Holy Spirit's not here yet, so there's going to be a gap. But after that, you're going to need to get to work. Because that light's going to return to the disciples and by extension to the church via the Holy Spirit for us to do that work. Everything that's written in God's Word is for our learning. So that we will be equipped to do the work that God's given to us. That's why we've got to get into the Word. And it encourages us and strengthens us during, during these hard times. Now notice when he said, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he said this, Jesus did something really weird. It always freaks me out when I read this passage. Notice where he says what he did in verses 6 and 7. When he had said this, he spat on the ground, made some clay of the spittle, and applied the clay to his eyes. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. And so he went away and washed and came back seeing. Now this is weird. Do you see anywhere where he asked the guy, do you mind if I make some mud and put it in your eye? He's talking to the disciple. He says, I'm in the light. I'm the light of the world. Poof. Makes mud, smears it on the guy's eyes. Now, keep in mind, the guy is blind. He can hear, but he can't see. And he's hearing Jesus say, I'm the light of the world. The next thing, he's got two thumbs sticking in his eyes with goo. Maybe he heard Jesus, you know, bring up some spit and... And then he says, now go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, if you've been to Israel with us, you know from the Temple Mount to the pool of Siloam is no short walk. It's downhill. The pool of Siloam is the pool that Hezekiah built to retain the water that comes from the Gihon Springs. So when it was within the city walls, down in the city of David, and so Hezekiah builds this tunnel to be able to get water into the city. And so then you had the pool that was a reservoir that was there. And if you remember when we went into chapter 8, we talked about the water celebration that was part of the feast. They would go down to the pool once a day and bring the water up. And then on the seventh day, they would do it seven times. No short walk. We've, we've been to the pool. We've also walked through the tunnel. So Jesus spits on the ground, makes mud, smears it in the guy's eyes. And says, go wash. Now, what's amazing to me is this isn't the first time that Jesus used spit to heal. In, in Mark chapter 7, he healed a deaf mute that way. He gave, I, I think Jesus was the one that created the wet willy. I don't know. Spit, put, put, his, put spit on his hands, put him in his ears, and the guy was healed. Mark 8, another blind man, he was spit by, by putting spittle in the eye. Now, what this is not doing, this is not creating the new ministry, the healing ministry of spit. It is not, you can't make doctrine out of this. Please come to our church on Sunday night and we are going to have the healing ministry of spit. It just doesn't work that way. Although a mother's spit cleans everything. Purifies it all. You know, it's funny when our kids were young. 
with the first child, we were always so scared, and they had the binky, and you know, the, the binky would fall on the ground, and then you'd take it over and you carefully wash it before you give it to the kid. That didn't last very long. About halfway through the first one, and for the rest of them, you just pick it up off the ground and stick it back in the kid's mouth. But we think about this. Jesus, you, you can't make this stuff up. He did it. And so he, he sends him down to go heal. And the guy comes back, washes, and he comes back seeing. Now, again, it, it wasn't a short walk. So the guy was probably gone easily. If he went straight there, it's probably about 20 minutes because you're blind. Maybe longer, because you got to. And again, you guys remember going down the southern steps. He would go over the top of the hill, and he'd walk down that road, all the way to the bottom. So, you know, it's a bit of time to get there. And so he'd come back up, and he was seeing. And and all of these people were watching him. The other thing that I think is interesting is the man does it. By faith. He doesn't argue with him. He just does it. And he comes back and he's seeing. So we see the man demonstrating this faith in this rabbi, in this action. Now keep in mind, again, Pulis Siloam was also known for superstitious healing powers. And, and so there was that element that was part of it. Is this man at saving faith yet? No. But he has enough faith to get him down the hill and back up to be able to see. So we pick up in verses 8 through 12. Again, why did Jesus do this? Why did he pick this one guy out of everybody that could be healed? Why did he pick the one guy that was blind to heal? Because it was an illustration of those that are blind in sin can be healed by Jesus, the Son of God. He comes back in verses 8 to 12, and he says, Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were still saying, This is he. Still others were saying, Nope, but he's like him. And he kept saying, I am the one. And so when they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered and he said, The man who was called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go wash in the Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. And then they said to him, Where is he? And he said, I don't know. Legitimate answer. Where is he? I don't know. Why? Because I never saw him. He was blind when he left. When he came back, there's no Jesus. The only way he'd know who Jesus is is by what? Sound. Or somebody pointed him out. Now, the interesting thing is about 8 and 9 is that all the neighbors saw him and they were confused in this community. And, and so within this, they saw this guy who they knew was legitimately blind and a beggar healed. The unthinkable happened. The unthinkable, how does this happen? No one who has ever been born blind has ever been healed. 
It just doesn't happen. And so they tried to rationalize and try to figure out what was going on. Tim Keller once said, and I quote, We modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order. But Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. Now think about that. We think that a miracle is the change of a natural order. No. Blindness is not natural. Sight is natural. So what Jesus did was he was not re- he was not intervening in something that was normal. He was restoring something back to normal. And who could do that? Only the Creator. In fact, Keller goes on. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it. Jesus has come to redeem it where it is wrong and heal the world where it's broken. And the miracles are not just proofs that He, was, that he has power, but also wonderful foretastes of what, is going to, what He's going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our heart that the world we all want is coming. When we think about a healing, whether it is through a doctor or a miracle, or the healing that comes when we shed a sinful body that's dying and we're with the Lord, that is the restoration back to the right order that God had established. That's the healing. And so, within this, we, we, we need to reframe our thinking. The neighbors, again, as I said, they tried to explain it away. They said, well, is this the man? No, I don't know. Maybe. He just looks like him. And they try to figure it out. And they can't. You can't explain away a miracle. The man was truly healed. So why was the man who was born blind healed on the temple? So that the power of God would be revealed through Jesus authenticating His message and His ministry. We pray for healings all the time. We pray for healings because we want to alleviate and relieve the suffering. But maybe we should pray, God, if you bring that healing, it is for your glory. So that you would be glorified within that and leave it at that place. Because in our weakness and in our brokenness, God is shown strong. Whether there's a physical healing or there's tremendous faith. In either case, whether there's a healing or there's faith through the suffering... Isn't God glorified? Both sides of the coin. And so healing is not the only way that God can be glorified in the suffering. And again, these guys were confused. They said, well, where is the healer? They asked the man, where is the healer? What did Jesus do? In the miracle, he set up this man to do something very special. To point people to Jesus. 
the healing, the action, was to get people to look for Jesus. He just didn't do it just for doing it. It was intention with that. And there was going to be much more that that was part of this. It would create some controversy, though, with the religious leaders. Look at 13 to 17. And when they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind, now it was a Sabbath on the day... Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. We didn't see that earlier, did we? It was on the Sabbath day that Jesus made mud... And it was on the Sabbath day that Jesus healed. Did Jesus forget to look at the calendar? Could he have picked another day? Or did Jesus intentionally pick the Sabbath day to heal this man? It was on the Sabbath day that Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And then the Pharisees were also asking him again, how he received his sight, and he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, I was washed, I see. And therefore some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, Well, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them, so that they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him? Since he opened your eyes. And he said, he's a prophet. So again, the blind man doesn't really know who Jesus is. Neither do the religious leaders. Now they're struggling. What are they struggling with? What is the difficulty for the religious leaders? He worked on the Sabbath. How blind can you be to miss a miracle? How blind can you be to miss the miracle? They would have known this beggar. They would have known that he was blind. Instead of rejoicing over the fact that another person's suffering has been relieved, what are they worried about? The man that worked on the Sabbath that gave sight. Who is really the blind one? The religious leaders. They're the blind ones. And they're asking this man, well, where is he? Now, again, Jesus healed on the Sabbath in verse 14. And now, Jesus' healing on the Sabbath, if we're going to look at it critically, is either a sin or it's a sign. It would be a sin if he wasn't the Lord of the Sabbath. But because he's the Lord of the Sabbath, and he created the Sabbath, Does he have the right to be able to change the Sabbath law? Absolutely, because he created it within that. In fact, in Matthew 12, 18, or Matthew 12, 8, it says, For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the only one that has the ability to override it. Why? Because he wrote it. And the Sabbath was not made for God, but the Sabbath was made for man. And he's God. So, True that Jesus healed on the Sabbath, but he had the priority to be able to do that. The other thing that is interesting is the fact that he did good on the Sabbath. They had created a tradition on the Sabbath that you couldn't even heal somebody on the Sabbath. 
It was better to let the person suffer on the Sabbath than work. Unless it was your animal that was in a pit, then you could go get your animal out of the pit because that's what made you money. And so they got really twisted about Sabbath laws. And so the Pharisees were, were going, well, how did this happen? And, and so they asked the guy, how did it happen? He goes, I don't know. This man, he spits on the ground, he makes mud, he puts it in my eyes, and he says, go wash. Well, I'm going to wash anyways. He put mud in my eyes, but go wash in the pool of Siloam. And I do, and I can see. It's amazing that it was that simple. Yet, they missed it. What were they missing? Well, one of the things that they were missing was the fact that according to Isaiah, one of the signs of the Messiah is giving sight to the blind. In Isaiah 29, 18, it says this, On that day the deaf will hear the words of the book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Isaiah 35, 5, The eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Now, you got Jesus who is declaring himself as being the Son of God, and he's giving sight to the blind, and he's giving people the ability to hear, and he's bringing that healing. But nowhere do you find in the prophetic history of Israel any prophet giving sight to the blind. Not recorded. What should have happened was the religious leaders who should have known Isaiah would go, We've never seen this before. This must be the Messiah. But they were so blinded by their own religion that they couldn't see the Messiah standing in front of them. Why? Because of their legalism. Does legalism blind people? Absolutely it does. They were blinded by the law that they loved more than God. They were blinded by their own religious pretenses. This man was an example of the power of the Messiah and they missed it. They didn't know what to do. They can't explain him. They don't know what to do with Jesus. They go to the guy and they say, well, who do you think he is? And he says, well, I, I think he's a prophet. Well, yeah. So, what do they do? If we can't explain something, let's destroy it. If we, can't, if we can't accept it, let's just get rid of it. And that's what they do, and that's what, that's what the world's been trying to do with God for a long time. Get rid of God. So within that, in verses 18 to 23, it says this, Then the Jews did not believe it of him, and that he had been blind, which is amazing. They don't believe that he had been blind, even though they know the guy. Had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? The parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He'll speak for himself. 
And his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. And for this reason, the parents said, he's of age, ask him. So what do they do? Okay, we've got to prove that this guy was not blind. That's the only way we're going to get around this. So they go get the parents of this adult man, and they bring mom and dad in before this. And is, is this your son? Yeah, that's our son. Was he born blind? Yeah, he was born blind. But we don't know who healed him or how he got healed. We're not going to attest to that within this. Can you imagine being the parents that are being hauled into court to attest to that? And they were scared, as we read, that if they say it was this Jesus, the Messiah, they get kicked out of the synagogue. Can religious people and social pressure create such a pressure on you that you won't stand up to testify that it's truth? Sure. They were scared. Kicked out of the synagogue was everything. And so the man's parents answered these questions. But the third question, he's our son. Yes, he was born blind. But the third question, you ask him. He's a grown man. You ask him. Testify to this himself. And so they deferred to the son. So regardless of, of the interrogation, they go back to the blind man, verses 24 to 34. So a second time they go back to the blind man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner, speaking of Jesus. And he then answered and he said, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, I now see. And so they said to him, what did he do to you? And how did he open your eyes? Okay, so now the Pharisees are not only blind, they're dumb. He answered and he said, I told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you... And he gets a little sarcastic. You do not want to become his disciples, do you? And they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing that you don't know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. And since the beginning of time, it's never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him and said, You were born entirely in sin, and you are teaching us? So they put him out. What's amazing is this. The religious leaders call this guy in and they say, look it, you need to tell us what happened. He said, I already told you. And you don't want to listen. You don't want to listen. This, this blind man was interrogated and they said, give glory to God. Literally meaning, submit yourself to God and tell the truth. But what were they really asking? Deny the truth. And tell us what, you, what we want you to tell us. Deny the truth and tell us what we want to hear. Oh, and by the way, if you do that, we'll keep you in the synagogue. It'll be okay. Deny the truth. And this man who 
had experienced the power of God, said, no, I'm sticking to the truth. Now, I got to thinking about this. Why would this guy be so hard and fast? Because he's not 100% convinced who Jesus is, other than a prophet. And then I got to thinking, this blind guy, he's really smart. Because what can the Pharisees do? Best they can do is kick him out of the synagogue, right? What happens if he makes Jesus mad who gave him back his sight? Jesus could come back and retaliate and do something worse. I'm going with the guy who had the power to heal me. I'm going to go with this guy. He says, I don't know what to tell you. I've told you the truth. You don't want to listen. I told you that this man was a prophet. And I, he's sticking with Jesus. He says, I don't know if the man is a sinner. But what I do know is I was blind. Now I see. I was blind. Now I see. And they pushed harder in verses 26 and 27. They're looking for something chargeable with him. And they said, what did he do? And, and within this, they want him to say that he worked. And then he gets sarcastic and he says, you want to become one of his disciples? And they said, no, we're disciples of Moses or the law within this. They want to push the law. They rejected the man's answers. And then he said this. Or they said, we don't know where this man has come from. Verses 30 to 34, this blind man schools the religious leaders. It's the blind man talking, and look at what he says in verse 30. The man, or the blind man, answered and said, Well, here is an amazing thing that you don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. Note, he gets theological with them. We know that God doesn't hear sinners. That's a theological truth. But if anyone is a God-fearer and does his will, he hears him. Hmm. You're telling me that this man's a sinner, yet this man as a sinner did something that no one else has ever been able to do. Explain that one to me. I love the fact when the glory of God shuts the mouths of the blind people. When God reveals His glory and His power and His strength, and the people that are supposed to be all that smart don't have a good answer within that. So what do they do? They rebuke this man as some kind of unlearned beggar. He doesn't know the law. They don't understand what's going on. And this man just challenges them. And this man brings out the theological truth that is founded in Isaiah. No one has ever opened the eyes of the blind, of one who was born blind. They can't answer that. He knew enough about God's Word to know that this guy potentially is the Messiah within this. But what do we find in verse 34? His standing up for the truth would cost him. He'd get put out of the synagogue. There will be times when you stand up for the truth. When you stand up for the truth to reveal the glory of God, that it will burn you with the social public. When you stand up, they will put you out. Of family, community, 
whatever that social environment is, when they don't want to hear it. And so this man was rebuked and, and insulted by them, and then they put him out. The verbal assault says, they said, you are completely born of sin. It'd be like saying to this guy, you're an illegitimate bastard. It was the worst thing that you could say to somebody. This rebuke. Which is interesting because it is a contradiction of what Jesus said earlier. Remember what the disciples asked. By whose sin was this man born blind? Jesus says, not by his sin nor his parents. And what do the religious leaders come back and they say? You're born of sin. Interesting. How the world tries to turn things around and bully you back into a corner. And so what do they do? They, they physically put him out. This man was cut off from the synagogue. You say, well, no big deal. He'll go find another synagogue. No, you don't get it. You get cut off from the synagogue, you get cut off from all society. You can no longer worship with your family. You can no longer go to the synagogue for anything. And it was life. This man was cut off from family, from community, and from worship of Yahweh. So what does Jesus do? Something incredibly compassionate. Look at verses 35 to 38. Jesus heard that they put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered and he said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking to you. And he, being the blind man who is now seeing, said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. This man stood up, and he wouldn't back down on the truth. Kicked out of society, kicked out of synagogue, and all these. And did you see where Jesus goes and finds him? He goes to him. Where is this man that showed such great faith? Jesus realized that this man needed his presence. It's important to understand, we don't find God, God finds us. When we go through trials and go through suffering, and I can tell you the blindness was one thing, but to get kicked out of synagogue, something else. And Jesus comes and finds him. Why? Not just to give him sight, he already did that but to give him life, to give him salvation. I want you to imagine for a minute, you, you are in a life raft in the middle of an ocean, and you can't see anything. You're floating on this, on this life raft, all, all around you is just water. You've been out there for days. And then suddenly, Coast Guard ship comes up. Question. Did you find the Coast Guard or did the Coast Guard find you? The Coast Guard found you. So many times we are out there and we feel like, I got nothing. I'm barely hanging on to life. And then God comes. And rescues us. This man 
was rescued by Jesus, who was the rescuer. And so finding the man, Jesus asked the man a question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, as a Jew, he would understand that. Because it would be a title that was given for the Messiah. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 says this, I kept looking in the night vision, behold, the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and He came up in the ancient of days and was presented before Him. So, do you believe in the Son of Man, the Messiah? And the man says, yes, I do believe in Him. Where is He? And He says, He's talking to you. You've seen Him. And again, Jesus reveals to him that He is the Messiah. Everything would have clicked. The Isaiah passage giving sight to the blind. And now him coming and finding him and giving him hope and new life. And he says, I am the one talking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. The other aspect of the Son of Man is this is that He has the authority to judge. And John 5.27 says He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He's the Son of Man. We also know the Son of Man is the mediator. Luke 12.8 says, I say to you, everyone who confesses Me before men, the Son of Man will confess Him before the angels in heaven, which is a powerful passage. Because He says, if you confess Me before men, I will confess you before the Father that's in heaven. If you deny Me before men, I will deny you before the Father in heaven. What did this guy do? He stood his ground and confessed what he knew. Will you? When pushed into a corner, will you stand your ground and say, I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who gave me life. And regardless of what you do or what you say, you are not going to change the truth. That Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus revealed Himself to this man and the man believed. Put his faith in Him and he worshipped Him. Why? Because not only he was given sight to the blind, but he was given spiritual eyes to see Jesus. Back to the question. Did the blind man go find Jesus or did Jesus find the blind man? Jesus found the blind man. Did the blind man ask for sight or did Jesus give sight? Jesus gave sight. When the blind man still wasn't at a place where he understood who Jesus is, did he find Jesus or did Jesus come and find him? Came and found him. At one point in time in your life, you were a blind beggar. And Jesus came to you and has given you sight. And you might say, well, I'm really struggling to see you, Lord. And Jesus continues to come to you, to reveal Himself to you more and more and more. So that you might believe. We see this truth in John chapter 6, verses 44 to 47. It says this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets. They shall be taught of God. Everyone who's heard and learned of the Father comes to me. 
Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He is saying to the Father, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. It was the simple faith of this blind man that brought about salvation. It's the simple faith that allowed this man to see. Jesus continued on with his conversation, though, in verses 39 to 41. He said to this man, and to those Pharisees that were standing in the distance, and again, you've got to imagine this, Pharisees were still following and watching. He's speaking to the man, but he's really speaking to the Pharisees that were off, the blind ones. And he said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see. Remember we read that earlier. Who is the one that did not see could see? The blind man. And that those who, may, who see may become blind. Who are those? The Pharisees. Did they know Jesus was talking about them? Absolutely yes. Look at the next verse. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to them, We're not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Hmm. If you were blind, you'd have no sin. Like this man who confessed and is forgiven. But because you say you see, but you really don't, your sin remains. Why? Because you don't see Jesus as the Messiah. It's interesting that it all centers on seeing the Son of Man as the Savior. To be able to see Jesus as the one who forgives you of sins. The other thing that's interesting is this, too. Not everyone who experiences, experiences and witnesses a miracle is going to believe. The Pharisees saw the miracle, and they didn't believe. It all comes down to, Lord, give me eyes to see. Open the eyes of my understanding that I might see you. Do you pray that prayer? Lord, open the eyes of my understanding so I would know you. Do you pray that prayer? If you want to see Jesus, you will see Him because He makes Himself known. Those that are truly saved will, will see Him and declare it. And the, and the faith response is, Lord, I believe, and you'll worship. But others, not so much. Because they keep their eyes shut. Now, it's interesting that this paradox exists. On one hand, the same Jesus in the same miracle brings grace and heals the man. The same Jesus in the same miracle brings judgment against the religious leaders. Question. Where do you want to be? Grace or judgment? I want grace. I don't want judgment. The same Jesus, the same words, the same experience, for some will be full of grace. But for others, judgment. And Jesus will bring that judgment to those and what they, because they are blind. 
And notice it's interesting. They said, we're not blind, are we? They're blind and they don't even know they're blind within that. But they are going to be without excuse. I'll close with this verse here in Romans 1. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, note, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. Yet, keep in mind, Paul saying they suppress it. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. In other words, what does God say? Through Paul. They know better. But they're suppressing it. And when it comes to Judgment Day, they will be without excuse. Is that true for the Pharisees who had the law? Absolutely. And we see that in our world today. Some people really want to understand suffering. Some people really want to understand God's plan. And I can tell you this, we're not going to ever get it. So what should we do? Like the blind man. Lord, I believe. Help me to see. If you do that, God will reveal His glory. And you'll get grace. But if you reject that, then you're on the side of the Pharisees, religious leaders, who see and do not believe. And having seen Jesus and not believing, oh, that's going to be bad. What side are you on? Grace or judgment? Can you see or are you still blind? That you've got to talk to God about. Let's pray. God, I thank you that we can be in this place where we can know your word, we can know you. Lord, I thank you that you have opened the eyes of those that were blind, blinded because of sin. And when you remove that sin, we can see you. When that sin is forgiven, we can see you. And we can worship you. Jesus, I thank that you thank you that you came to us. You came to me while I was a blind beggar. And you brought that healing. Lord, I thank you that I can see you and know you. But yet, Lord, I still pray that you would continue to the open the eyes of my understanding, that I would know you more and worship you more. May that be our prayer tonight, even as we close. As we, as we close with this, this song and, and as we go into our day, may the Holy Spirit open the eyes of our mind so that we can see Him. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Father and the Son, praise Father.
blessed rest of your week. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.